This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. In this episode, Mary Kyo shares how the riches are in the niches. You're probably seeing success with a niche audience that already loves your service or product. And in this episode, Mary shares how you can find out who they are, what pains they're using you to solve, and then how to attract and convert more of those best fit customers. Mary, thank you so much for coming on uh, Metrics and Chill. Thanks for responding to my message. Like like I said, uh, kind of off, off interview or off mic, I've been like scrolling all your posts and everything you write, I'm like, yes, this is exactly right. Yes. So like, I feel like we're kindred spirits and I'm super excited to chat. The topic is near and dear to my heart today. So thanks for willing to come on. Oh, heck yeah, Jeremiah. I was like so excited to talk with you, not only because of the concept of the podcast, but I love what you guys are doing at Databox, like tying metrics to a strategy, tying metrics to a narrative. So they're not just like living in this oblivion or living in this space that doesn't relate to the greater company vision. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Love to hear that. Um, yeah. So today for listeners, we're going to be talking about, like I said, this is a topic. This is probably like, if I, I don't think anyone's answered kind of the inbound form, the way that you did as like, what's the number one kind of thing you feel like you need in order to drive predictable growth, which is where this, you know, these topics come from. Um, this is exactly, I think what I would answer. So this is why I'm like fired up to have this conversation. You, but you put a cool name to it. I wouldn't have put such a cool, I would have put like a really lengthy technical description. You called it the riches are in the niches, which is an awesome description of this. Um, and basically this idea of, is it fair to summarize it of attracting more of your best customer, finding yes. who your best customer has historically been and and you have kind of like really nice steps laid out and a framework laid out of how to do this. Um, so can you give like the... I guess, give us the summary version of what this process looks like. What does it mean? So for listeners who like, what's the pitch for them? Yeah. So the big pitch, like big concept, big idea, riches are in the niches are you're winning somewhere. Like there's somewhere in your company where you're not only creating customers who keep coming back, but they love to keep coming back to you. They love your solution. They love what you're doing for them. So you just need to define that customer segment and you can kind of do it in two ways. Um, you can do it in a qualitative way and a quantitative way. And I think you should do it in both, which I'm sure your listeners will love as a metrics and chill podcast. So the qualitative way is just like, talk to them, become obsessed with them sit in on sales demos, sit in on onboarding sessions, sit in on training sessions, like just get completely into the mind and the situation of your customer. So that's like the qualitative aspect. And from there, what you're really looking to pull out is essential components of positioning. So who are they? You know, what's their job title? What industry are they in? Maybe where did they sit in their organization? And then what problems are they having? Why did they come to you? What attracted them to your company? What problems are they having in their day-to-day -day and how do they think you can solve them? And then from there, you're going to pull out your features. So what are the feature, the individual features that can solve those problems? So you're almost going to do like a mapping strategy. And from there, you can do, um, I pulled this directly from April Dunford's book, Obviously Awesome. It's worked over and over and over again for me. And it's called Feature Benefit Value Mapping. So you take mm, that feature, yes. describe the benefit, and then describe the value that benefit brings. So 
Yeah. Just from a qualitative perspective, that's exactly what I did. And I've done before, even before I came on to map my customers. And then from a quantitative perspective, it's also important, you know, maybe you have some really great customers who love you, but you are looking to expand to enterprise and the customers who love you right now are only small teams. So you need to start figuring out A, if you have any enterprise customers, who are they? How do they look different from your smaller teams? And that's all going to come from a quantitative analysis. So that's what are your sources? How are they finding you? What's the conversion rate look like? What's the customer acquisition cost? Is it going to cost you way too much to acquire these kinds of customers? So making sure that your qualitative analysis lines up with your quantitative analysis is really essential. Awesome. Yeah. I I absolutely love this. Um, and I have a lot of, a lot of questions we'll dig into here. So, nice. um, so yeah, I mean, one of the first things before I kind of jump into my questions, it makes me think is it's funny, like at data box. Um, so you're saying like wh- when you start to identify, you're first looking at qualitative and quantitative, um, and the qualitative thing, like more and more in my career, I've realized how valuable that is when quantitative is tough to pin down, like a data box we have a freemium model, like we're product led. We have a sale, like we, like you can book a call with sales, but we're, we take a product led approach. We get signups from all kinds of businesses. Right. And so it's funny because like we get agencies, we get B2B SaaS companies, we get e-commerce brands, like there's this wide array and it would be really tough. Like I hypothetically, I could pull up the data, right. And let's say for sake of discussion, like it's exactly equal across like there's a variety of role. There's like three or four different roles. There's three or four different industries and it can be super hard to pin down. And increasingly I've come to appreciate the qualitative aspects of what you're talking about because I've found like, okay, yeah, when you can't, we did this with the podcast, like when you can't niche down to a job title or an audience, you know, there's always a strong advantage to being able to say, we're the demand gen podcast. Well, yeah, of course. So you can rally all this role around you and then you can go deep on explore wide on exploring their problems because you've narrowed around job title or, you know, narrow around a size of company or an industry or something like that. Like we're the best, you know, uh, podcast for manufacturing, for marketing and manufacturing. Um, but when you can't do that, that's where the qualitative has become so useful of like even saying, well, we can at least narrow around the pain points they're trying to solve. Like, because the oftentimes products like Databox, like there's a variety of uses, right? Like there's reporting, there's dashboards, there's like all these things but you can start to find trends between, okay, yeah, the people that retain the longest are using us for this reason, no matter, it might be a diversity of backgrounds or job titles, but they're all coming for this specific pain point. So that's why I love that blend is like, for listeners, don't think that you can't do this. If you hear Mary saying quantitative and you're like, oh, we're for, we already know we're for like five different industries and five different job titles. It's like, well, yeah, but the qualitative, in addition to everything you said, I think, still allows you to group down around like your pain point can be a positioning thing, like the thing that you narrow and and the way that that messaging reflects on your website. Oh my gosh. That is such an important point. Um, Jeremiah, I'm so glad you made it because we were really winning. I would say on the enterprise side in two very different areas. One of them was like medical device and diagnostics. And then the other was manufacturing and industrial two very different industries Their pain points kind of crossed over, but there was definitely clear pain points one versus the other. And then when we went into like talk, when I um, kind of presented my findings to sales, presented my findings to customer success, it was like, 
Yeah. But we like our manufacturing clients more like they're just easier to work with. So that was a really interesting find when you kind of dig into the qualitative side too, is yeah, you might be winning in like five industries from a quantitative perspective, but like, who do you actually want to do more business with? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, so, so one of the things that you articulated here is you are drawing out you're, you're not just like learning more about who your customer is, but you're learning about, you're learning the words they use to describe you. And I think like then reflecting those words on your website, on your go-to-market messaging so that you're attracting more of those people. And I think this is huge because there's this temptation in marketing to feel like we have to, like, we have to craft the catchiest taglines and we have the best way to like, you know, uh, deliver the elevator pitch or summarize like what we do and who we're for. And like, you know, in, in, in like the best summary. And this is a really humble approach, which I like of saying, okay, we thought of ourselves this way, or like we talked about ourselves this way, but 80% of all, like the sales calls we listen to, or like the customers that we interview, they're articulating the same three pain points as this way. So that's what we're going to use. And not just those are the three pain points we're going to say we solve on the homepage or maybe base our product or use case pages around, but also like, this is the exact wording that they're using. And we're going to reflect that because like, it doesn't matter that we think we have a cleverer way of saying it. The, the way that they use is like going to resonate more with other people that look like them. Yes. hundred percent. Um, one of the coolest examples I've had of this is people who use us as a CRM. So we positioned ourselves as a CRM for outside sales teams. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over and over again was we just hate our CRM. Our sales reps don't use it. It's really difficult. So it doesn't really help us manage customer relationships. So CRM, customer relationship management. So one of the campaigns we ran on paid social was, you know, put the relationship back in CRM. So, you know, pull out that insight. And probably the coolest thing we had happen is demo, ICP fit, like all the great stuff, you know, reference that ad and then parroted back our messaging to us. He's like, we were like, okay, so why'd you come to us? You know? And the cool thing was he said, I wasn't even looking for a solution. Like you guys grabbed my attention because I do feel like we have a CRM that doesn't really help us manage customer relationships. So it was just really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love, uh, I love real, real examples like that. And it just feels like, I mean, it sounds so odd. Like some of this stuff, part of the problem with talking about this stuff is like, sometimes it come, you feel like, oh, it's so obvious. Like companies have to understand this, but it's insane how many will lead with like a technical description of how the thing works or like what IP or like thing that they, you know, like, oh, it, it utilizes this like unique thing or we have IP that makes it this unique. And it's like, um, it's so simple to just say, well, this is why customers say they use us. This is why, and like, this is the wording that they're using. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's so impactful and so important for people to hear examples of. I'm curious on like, what, you know, to wrap up sort of the customer interviewing side and finding, starting with this position of finding your niche. Um, what are some other things people should look for qualitatively? Like, or quantitatively, I, you said things like it's job title, um, it's, it might be like company size, revenue amount, category or industry or market that they're in. Qualitatively, what are some, do you have any like favorite questions that you ask or things that you think really get at some of those insights? 
Yes, for sure. So it can be really difficult to talk to customers, especially on like the manufacturing industrial side. So if you work in maybe some more conservative industries, like just spitballing, like finance might be one of those too. Um, the best questions I can ask, because I started this out way back um, in my first job, like right out of college, you know, I was like a couple of years in, I really wanted to do these customer interviews. And I was like, you know, tell me about your day-to-day job. And it was like, well, I don't know, I do this. And I was like, okay, so like, how are you measured on that? Like, what does it look like to do that? And like, it was just like pulling teeth with these operations guys to like, get them to tell me what they did, what their job responsibilities were, how they were measured on those. So my two favorite questions that I pulled from doing this are, you know, one of this, this one guy, I'll never forget it just seemed like he was having a really bad day. And I was like, Hey, it seems like you're kind of having a bad day. Like what does the worst day of your job look like? And he was just like, like just spitballed like 10 things on like how, like, you know, 10 problems he would have on his worst day. Like, um, my foreman wouldn't show up. The line would break down. We did, we missed our order quota. So it was just like, boom, he just listed 10 problems and he was able to kind of also get out his frustrations with his job. And then on the reverse, I, um, started asking what's the best day in your job look like. So what does it look like to just show up and you're just like, you leave and you're like, that was a great day. And from there, you can kind of pull out what solution. So like, what would it look like if he met his quota for the day? What does it look like if no one calls in sick and the line is moving? It's, hey, I meet my quota, not only for the week, I could meet it for like the whole month if production is really good and like everything is swimming. And then I get, you know, you know, maybe bonus points for a promotion or something like that. So the best day, worst day has been two key questions that I ask in every customer interview now. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like, The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth, and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. I love that. And do you map those then to like the reward that like this product will give you? Like, do the like, so then in your headline, you're like, you know, uh, I forget some of the, some of the specifics, but it was like, you know, win more bonus points, like whatever it might be, like, that's the yes. promise that you're holding out. Okay, cool. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or, um, <laughs> I mean, it's bad. We all know the data from Facebook, like how they kind of tweak the algorithm to be more negative focused. So, I mean, if you do hit on the problems, they do tend to get a little more engagement. So using that same example, 
something like frustrated that your foreman didn't show up today, like you could be doing this. So almost like really highlighting that pain point and then positioning your product as the solution. Got it. Okay. Love it. Yeah. Um, now what are the things like when you come away with this, uh, would you, would you call this like a positioning statement that essentially that like you're coming away with? Okay. Yes. Um, and so you said you'll take the, so you'll look for like the features that you offer and you'll map them to, uh, a value or a benefit that the user should care about. I think April, uh, April says like the, the trigger here is like, okay, so why should I care? Like, this is what we yes. offer. It's like, so what? Like answer yep. the so what question. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, like we let you build custom dashboards. So what? Like, what is that? Like, what does that, you know, let you do? So you're mapping that to a value. So a lot of times when you're overhauling a website, that'll go under like your product page or like features, like that'll be like the headline copy that you lead with. Like you're going to lead with those values and some of those things. What about, um, what about like differentiation or like, how do you narrow down to like the main pain or like problem that you solve? Like, do you find that it's like one pain or do you map like multiple pains or how do you think about translating some of these customer interviews to actual like copy on the website? Yeah. So that's an awesome question for the features pages you brought up. I'll do that. Cause it's kind of the easiest one. So there was like five main categories that we could place all our features in that customers kept saying we solved for them. So we solved a specific problem. So from there doing like the feature benefit value mapping was great, but how I did it was contacted the customer and then contacted customer success. Also customer success was a huge resource for me during this time. And just, I wanted to hear use cases. How specifically do customers now use this feature? And then what you can do is like kind of anonymize that use case and use it as copy fuel on your website. So you laid it out perfectly. So our every features page, if you go to our website is, you know, big value prop of the feature. So not using necessarily the internal, internal words we use to describe it, but using the words customers use to describe it. And then it'll have like three to five use cases in like a Z pattern. We'll have our integrations. We'll have some logos for social proof and then boom, call to action. So we want to make it like super simple for you to realize the value of the feature and then, you know, answer those objections. Like you said, okay, but this is nice. Who else used it? Oh, here's a customer, customer testimonial. Here's a few logos. Um, maybe there's an extra resource or something on there. So that's just one example from the features pages. Now you did also ask about, you know, what's the big problem you solve and the big one we solve. So we position ourselves as a CRM and outside sales teams either didn't have a CRM or were switching in a way. So they weren't really mm -hmm. like they weren't happy with their CRM or they weren't fully utilizing it. So we were seen as either a substitute for the interim or a complete replacement. Awesome. Great in both solutions. So what we did was just really highlight, like almost using our strategic narrative on the okay. homepage to say, here's really the broad overarching reason that we exist. Okay. And you can okay. go see it right now at mapmycustomers.me if you want. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Everyone go check. I'll link to it in the show notes too. So if you're on your podcast app, you can just tap the link. Um, yeah, no, I love this. And, um, and then as far as like, um, as far as like actually taking the messaging off your website, what are your thoughts about like for drawing from the positioning statement to taking for like, you know, whether it's 
like LinkedIn ads or like different brand copy that you're doing or social posts? Like, how do you feel like, what are some ways that companies can take this and work with other parts of their marketing team to make sure that you're all like, I know that's one challenge is like, that there would be misalignment that maybe like the team running demand and reaching people through LinkedIn paid or through like different paid social programs or like organic social or the podcast or the newsletter, they're talking one way. And then the website talks a different way. Like how do you make sure that that's like a seamless experience so that um, I would imagine that that's like one of the huge benefits of this is you've got this positioning statement and you're able to kind of say, okay, everyone, here's, here's how, like, here's our go-to-market language, you know, statement effectively. Like here's the primary pain we solve. Here's a couple of use cases. Here's how we map features to values. And it's clear how that all fits on the website. How do you, does it go anywhere else? Like, does it go to sales? Does it go to CS? Does it go to like the demand team focusing on people? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So yes to all of those. Um, so the um, the positioning original document I created, super, super basic. I mean, it was literally like, this is who we're targeting. This is their problems. Here are how the feature solves it. I think it was like maybe one or two pages in a Word doc, you know, nothing crazy. And then what I did in like probably my first 60 days was do a strategic narrative workshop with our um, leadership team. So really pulling out why we exist, what's the change in the world. I think I pulled this directly from like Winter or Andy Raskin or something. And we came out with this like, you know, seven page document. Now, normally seven page document sits on Google Drive and no one ever <laughs> sees it again. But Amen. my like basic rule was you can use any of this verbiage in marketing material, like pull out anything you want, just don't use the word we. So don't talk about map my customers, talk about the customer. So you can pull out any of those features, any of those solution statements, any of the strategic narrative, especially, but reframe it from the point of view of the customer. And I think that's worked out pretty well so far. Do you have an opinion on who should ideally own this? Like I know April's an advocate of like every six to 12 months, you're going through this practice because like you say, like you might decide we're going to go upstream to enterprise or you know, we're attracting a new type of customer now, or like we're rolling out new features that appeal to more people. So this is ideally a practice people should do at least yearly. I would think if not, you know, every, every like two quarters or something, do you have an opinion on like, does it depend on the size of the team and like who's available? Should it always be head of marketing or director of marketing should always be product marketing? Like should leadership be involved? Should C-suite or founders be involved? What, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Leadership has to be involved in strategic narrative. Like they just have to, otherwise it's not going to trickle down. It's going to be this nice little thing that marketing uses to talk about itself and nobody else uses in the rest of the company. So I've made sure like our founder, CEO, head of customer success, head of sales, and me were there. So pretty small team, but all senior leadership so that they could kind of trickle down the findings to their teams. And I think that's like, it's critical. You need it. And you know, I talk about our strategic narrative with my CEO, like probably monthly, like I'm like, mm. how do you feel about this? Like, do you feel like people are buying into it? So even though I owned the process and owned the writing of it, I wanted to make sure that it was really the CEO and the founder who are owning the distribution of it internally. Okay. Uh, one thing we talked about, and you have a really cool example of this, I want to get into, but um, one thing we talked about would be this idea of fostering rejection, like, which is an idea that a lot of companies I have found are not like super warm to maybe at first, like this idea that you're going to talk in a way where 
like asynchronous, like you, you're treating your website like an asynchronous salesperson. You're answering, we had Marcus shared it on, right? And he was saying, uh, answer all their questions and objections asynchronously via content on the website with the aim of helping the visitor decide, make the best educated decision. Are you the right fit for me and for my pains and for my needs and my situation? And then when they get on and talk to sales, they're like almost ready to close. Like sales people will be, you know, it's a much better use of sales time and all these things under that umbrella is this, I think part of what goes with that, what you're talking about from the positioning side is when you start to lean in heavier to like who we're for, you're kind of leaning into like who we're not for. Like you're painting, even if you don't intend to, you're painting a, a clearer picture of like, these are the use cases, not these, or like, this is the problem you probably feel if you're coming here. And then it's like implied that if you don't feel that problem, maybe it's not for you. Um, what, like, what are your thoughts? You have a cool example of like how you did this, like fostered rejection, but saw positive results. But I want to know just like philosophically, um, where do you think people get hung up around this idea and where there may be like some misnomers here? Um, and what are some like legitimate concerns and how should marketers address those? Like if they're, if they're coming in saying like, yeah, we want to overhaul this language, but it feels like it's going to ostracize potential customers and sales won't get a chance to convince them, you know, like to come on board. What are some things that you would say in response to that? Yeah. So a couple um, responses from the, how do we know sales and how do we know we shouldn't sell to everybody? So if you run any kind of outbound motion, so you're just cold calling, cold emailing, just get the efficiency metrics. You'll find out really fast why you actually can't be everything to everyone. And if you get someone in front of sales, sales isn't just going to magically close them. So that's a really easy way to do it because we were running an outbound motion. And that's one way that I proved that. But before I was even hired to map my customers, they were on board with this, this strategy. So I explained to them exactly what you just said. Your website should be your asynchronous salesperson. This is exactly how I would reframe and restructure the website so that we get more high intent leads. All right. You wrote a post uh, recently, and it was like last week or the week before, that you made a change related to all of this and you and you tanked your company's traffic by 48%. And everything got better as a result. So walk us through that example. Like for people who haven't read the post, uh, share that example. Yeah. Our site traffic um, quarter over quarter, month over month dropped 48%. So because we completely revamped the strategy, obviously we weren't getting the same results. So traffic just completely tanked. And if I hadn't had a CRM or a marketing automation platform or some way to measure the down funnel results... I probably would have been fired or <laughs> my CEO would have been like, what the hell is going on? But because I'm able to measure the downstream results, we actually saw like 120% increase in high intent leads month over month. And then it was like 60 something percent higher than our highest high intent lead count um, ever. That was already converting to pipeline, even though I hadn't predicted it would turn into pipeline quite yet. So our pipeline is up like 50%. Um, so yeah, like all good downstream results, even though that top funnel, you know, traffic number just completely tanked. Why do you think it tanked out of curiosity? Um, you know, so we, like we were talking before we started recording, like I was saying, you know, Benjamin Elias was on here and one of the best examples, I think I've referenced it a couple of times was I love his example of KPIs as, uh, 
like all of this being like a constellation, like data points that are stars in a constellation. And that the goal is not necessarily to see every single one go up. I always get, I always get pushback whenever I say this, like someone says like, well, but you should still try to improve. Like, okay, I get it. Like <laughs> improve certain things where you can. Right. But for the most part, Benjamin's point, which I really liked was study the like track them to understand the relationship between them. And in this case, a perfect example of that, like you were tracking all these things down funnel and then up funnel like traffic. And you were able to see, I'm implementing this strategy and you saw all these like down funnel metrics improve quite a bit and these up funnel metrics decrease. So you know the relationship of like what happened, where if everything, if your org was treated like everything needed to go up into the right, like you said, it would have been a failure. Like, oh, you decreased traffic, less people see us, less like less opportunities. But you were able to paint this like really beautiful picture. Um, so yeah, I just think I just think that that's like super super important as well. Yeah, and oh my gosh, I love that you pointed out the you know company leadership thinks everything in marketing should be going up and to the right. Um, that's great, it can. But marketers also need to be brave enough to say, then you need to triple my budget. Like if you want traffic to like remain the same. Give me, you know, five, fifteen thousand dollars a month for this SEO agency. They'll increase our traffic. They'll write a bunch of high volume keywords, but I can't do that. So I think being super clear. So, like I said, I got buy-in on the strategy before I was even hired onto Matmic customers. So that part they were already bought in on. So any changes to that strategy, obviously it became a little more concrete as I learned more and more in my first like 30 to 45 days. But now, if anybody comes to me and they're like, hey, we should put on this live event. We should buy a booth at this conference. We should do you know, XYZ marketing tactic that doesn't fit into my strategy. I say, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think um, I'm a huge fan of that as well. I feel like for the past two roles, I've had very lengthy uh, interview processes where I'm like, Hey, let me just tell you what I would do in this role. Like if I were in this role, this is what I'd do. Cause it's kind of like a, I like it. Um, it's kind of like a, a safety feature because you're able to be like, well, this is like my expectations and how I approach marketing. Um, and if we don't align, it's better to find that out now. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I'm just going to tell you the things that I believe in and what I would implement um, and find that out early. So yeah, I, I think that's really crucial too. Yeah. I love that. Um, Okay. Two more things. And then we'll get into some quick, rapid, rapid questions here. Um, awesome. Some speed round questions. So you mentioned uh, scalable channels in the form that you filled out um, that like effectively you, so we've talked about defining who your customers are talking to them, you know, to get these qualitative insights, crafting your positioning statement um, use then taking that language, you know, the, the pains that you solve, the your differences than competitors, um, take all these things and craft them into like a go-to-market uh, messaging statement and then reflect that on your website so that you're attracting more of your best customers. And then you said to do it in the most efficient way possible, start with scalable channels. Can you unpack a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'll give some examples like real world industrial and manufacturing where I came from. So the traditional route to go for let's say engineering team brings marketing. They're like marketing. We created this beautiful new product. Like we can't wait. Um, go tell people about it. And the usual thing is let's buy a trade show booth. Let's bring it to the trade show booth. Let's do an email campaign. 
Now, the interesting thing is that is one go-to-market strategy. I would argue it's not the most efficient and it's certainly not the most scalable. So let's say you find some success with trade shows, which I highly doubt if you are finding success with trade shows, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but the problem with trade shows is once it's done, it's done. So how do you scale that? Well, you could go to more trade shows, but that also requires a ton of resources on both marketing and sales, and sometimes product, depending on how your company is structured. So while that is one way to go to market, it's important to focus on scale first when you're just starting out, either just building a marketing strategy or you're releasing a new product into the market. Focusing on scalable strategies is so critical because while you're growing the scalable strategy, I'll give you a really specific example from Matt, my customers, you can explore unscalable strategies. So once the scalable strategy, once the scalable channel is working, it's producing consistent and repeatable results, you get to do the unscalable things because you've built that trust and you've built the engine that's going to produce, you know, like 80 to 90% of your results so that 10 to 20% of your time is spent on those unscalable marketing efforts. So Example from at my customers, really, really easy one is LinkedIn. So we do a lot of um, organic LinkedIn, both from personal and company pages, and we do a lot of paid LinkedIn. Okay. So both cold and retargeting. So that's one channel where if we see positive results, we can increase the budget. We can increase the audience size. We can run more campaigns. So we get in front of people with different types of messaging. LinkedIn's a very scalable channel. So if I get LinkedIn and let's say, you know, we sprinkle in Facebook and Instagram, maybe some Google ads, though I would argue Google ads is only scalable to a certain extent. Um, we That's an engine that we can keep feeding. Then when my CEO says, hey, do you want to go to this event? I can say, yes, here's how I would do it. Here's how it would fit into the strategy. So that's what I mean by scalable, repeatable. Do you think, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. We had, uh, we had, um, an episode where we chatted about like finding a couple channels that are driving most of the revenue that you can kind of forecast and the pipeline you can kind of forecast to give you leverage and buy-in to go like do longer burn, like channels that are going to take longer investments like YouTube and things like that. So yeah, completely. Yes. Um, all right. Awesome. I love this. Like I said, I'm in like basically complete agreement that this is like the core thing that most companies need to get right. The, the other thing that I think companies don't realize is if you don't do this early or before you try it, like a lot of companies will 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 act like, okay, the website's good enough. Like the messaging's good enough. We kind of took a spin at it. We They don't go through this process. And I think that's the thing. It feels like pumping the brakes or stopping output for very low return to a lot of companies. And yeah, I wanted to tie this to um, a challenge. Like what drove you to kind of be such a strong believer in this at some pushback you received at one of your earlier roles. Um, but I think in, you know, in my experience, I found sometimes it's like companies don't want to pump the brakes. The idea of like, this is a lot of work just to update messaging. Like, are we really going to see, like people think about this maybe a good way to say it is people think about it almost like a CRO experiment. It's like, but it's not. And it's hard to help people understand. It's like, it's not conversion rate optimization. It's not like, these aren't like little tweaks or like red to blue. They're not that different. It's like, 
if you reverse engineer how you buy and how you browse websites, this stuff matters a lot. Like the way that they talk about the problems that they're going to solve for you and the logos that they show you and the way that they, the way that they say they can help you, like it makes all the difference in the world. So this is just like something I think is so critical. And in my experience, um, companies that are resistant to it, it just doesn't feel like the ROI is going to be there. Like, well, we're already doing X amount. Is it really going to increase that much? But I feel like if you don't do it and then you spend all this time driving traffic, it just feels like you're like you're pouring water in like a leaky bucket. Like you're just not making the most of everyone coming to your website. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, both your um, messaging on your website is not conversion rate optimization and that you're probably missing a giant opportunity if you're not like constantly thinking about ways that it could be a little bit better, or even like what we were saying, doing, doing those semi-regular experiments or workshops with your team where you're saying, Hey, let's change something big and see what happens. Um, yeah, I think conversion rate optimization is how do we get people to find, so navigate the website really easily to get the information they want and then to convert. And then what does that conversion experience look like once they write as they're submitting the form and then right after. So I yeah. could not agree with you more. Um, okay, perfect. This is awesome. Uh, this will be a fun one to kind of like write up the summary of. All right. So we've got four more questions. We've got three lightning round questions uh, for fun. Nice. And then one kind of like your last like your uh, parting piece of advice to for B2B leaders. Um, okay. Um, you can answer these any way you choose, short answers. What are three metrics you track closely and how often do you track them? Or the lately, the more fun way I've been asking it is uh, your three desert island metrics. You can only track. I think that I should just switch the question because this is more fun. Uh, what are your three <laughs> desert island metrics? You can only track three uh, as a marketing leader. Which three are you tracking? Yep. I'm tracking high intent leads. I'm tracking what are they saying in the, how did you hear about us form? And then I'm tracking pipeline. So inbound pipeline. Perfect. Love it. That would be my answer as well. I think. Um, okay. Finish this sentence. Data is. Abused. Okay. Can you unpack that a little bit? I love that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I think, um, you know, everybody thinks data is everything. Um, everybody wants more data. Everyone wants to analyze every little bit or piece of that data to answer a question. Um, and I think it kind of becomes this paralysis by analysis, you know, stealing a um, slogan from out there. But I think that it's abused as an excuse not to do certain things. So mm. um, I'll give a really specific example with our product tour. It, I, I mentioned that it was gated before and they were like, but how are we going to get names to sales? And I was like, well, we're going to get it through the book, a demo form. And it's like, well, what is our outbound team going to do it? How are we measuring the conversion rate? How are we measuring how many touches we're getting? How are we? And it's like, whoa, this is just like, let's not use this as an excuse not to ungate the demo. Like bring it back to why we're ungating the demo in the first place. We're not ungating the demo because we think it's going to improve conversion rates. I'm ungating the demo because it's a pain to potential customers. They just want to see how the product works. Like let yeah. them see how the product works. I don't care if it's like converting better or not. If people want to buy from us, they'll buy from us. So that's just one example of like, I think 
data can be abused not to do things that just make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I had Jotano on the show and he was saying more and more as he grows in his marketing career, he's interested in measuring like one or two leading indicators that people are like hitting the website, seeing the messaging, like that the right people are like engaging with you. And then like the lagging indicators of like pipeline and revenue, because everything in the middle get exactly this thing, like gets abused or like tons of politics around it. And it's like, wait, wait, are we trying to increase the like conversion rate of like this button or like this thing, or are we trying to drive revenue? Like exactly if we're driving revenue and we're making it easier for people, why do we care? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. I couldn't agree with Gatano more now too. I think I look at maybe a few leading indicators and then a lot of like down funnel metrics, but even the down funnel metrics, like maybe I'm looking at really in-depth stuff, like once a quarter semi-annual, as far as like, you know, CAC and cost per opportunity, cost per customer, all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, definitely agree with that. Awesome. Yeah. We had, um, uh, Adam Goyette came on to, and he had a really cool, like, I really liked his for everything in the middle, which was basically like, uh, examine your, the, the full customer life cycle or the marketing funnel, whatever you're in control of and find your highest performing and your lowest performing metric, double down on your highest performing and improve your lowest performing and then repeat every quarter. And I would, I feel like that's a beautiful balance that he articulated of like, you could like, if you're, if you want to lead with a simplistic model, which I'm in favor of, like you're talking about, it's like, you can focus on those two. And those are what drive a lot of your decisions, the data that drives a lot of your decisions, um, because you're measuring like what's going to be most impactful to pipeline. And then like, when you, because we do have opportunity to improve things in the middle, like I'm not saying there's not opportunity to improve messaging or conversion on the website or things like that, but you're doing it at like, okay, what's the thing we can double down on? Cause it's going really well. And what's the thing we can improve? Cause it's underperforming. So yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. What is last question? What is one actionable step listeners should stop and go do after this interview? So any B2B marketing or B2B teams listening that are trying to drive predictable growth, what's one thing they should go do as a result of listening to you today? Ooh. Align your marketing strategy with the business strategy. So make sure those two things are in alignment. Love it. Awesome. This has been so much fun, Mary. Thank you for coming on uh, and sharing the framework. Where can people go? Like, I mean, you're active on LinkedIn. Where do you want people to go follow yeah. you? Yeah, please. On LinkedIn. Um, I'm there all the time. If you have any questions about the episode today or what we chatted about, please, please reach out. I answer all my DMs unless it's a pitch. So please don't <laughs> pitch me in my DMs. And then I also do a podcast with my friends, Aaron and James called the Purposeful Marketing Podcast. It's just for fun. It's just like a few marketers who are also people chatting about real life things. So um, you can find me in those two places. Awesome. We'll link to all that in the show notes. If you're interested, go follow Mary. Uh, like I said, some of the best thought leadership on marketing you could consume on LinkedIn. So if you want marketing advice, go, go give her a follow. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremiah. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.